Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, today we're going to continue our conversation about the formation of becoming a priest. And for some priests out there, they choose to join a specific order. And since you're one of those priests who've done that, I figured, why not have this conversation right now? So I don't really know anything about that world. I figure it's best to just let you dive in. We'll go from there. <laughs> Great. Um, and I would just already say it uh, just slightly differently. And again, I, I only draw attention to this because it helps to make the distinctions. Um, not so much that priests join religious orders, but a religious order is its own discernment. And usually it's the other way around. People join a religious order. And then if they're men, there's a possibility of becoming a priest. Some religious orders are, are simply religious orders of brothers. So especially in the Pittsburgh area, a lot of people are familiar with the Christian brothers uh, who were founded by uh, St. John Baptist de La Salle. And uh, they, they manage a Catholic, Central Catholic, and, and do that. So they wouldn't even have priests in their order. You know, a man would just discern that he was called to live out that particular spirituality. And that, uh, as I'll come back to in a moment, the thing that kind of unites consecrated life in the church are the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which are known as the evangelical, meaning gospel, the gospel counsels of Christ, particularly drawn from his encounter with the young man, the rich man who asked, uh, you know, what do I need to, uh, to, to be perfect? And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, sell all you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. So selling all you have is poverty. Following Christ is a path of obedience and chastity, which Christ himself lived his obedience to the father and his chastity as uh, the bridegroom of us all and the bridegroom of the church. Anyway, uh, so just to say, normally what would happen if a man is called to priesthood, that he's called and to religious life, usually he's called to religious life first. Now it is possible we have a couple of men who became diocesan priests and then discerned that the Lord was calling them also to religious life. And they entered the monastery later after uh, they were already ordained priests. But that's more rare. M most of the time, somebody would discern religious life. And then, again, if it's a man, uh, possibly also. And it's a clerical order, also the possibility of priesthood. So uh, just to kind of see, and I want to say those things in that way, because to really help people see that religious life and priesthood are really two different things. Priesthood's really focused on the sacraments. A priest is able to celebrate the Eucharist, is able to hear confessions, is able to anoint the sick. A priest baptizes and marries, uh, witnesses marriages and has funerals. And, but it's, it's all oriented around the sacraments, the celebration of the sacraments. Religious life is, uh, is another way of living out the Christian life and it's, it takes up a, a few different things. The thing that they have in common, which pe causes people to put them together in their minds, is the fact that they're both, they both involve uh, consecrated chastity or celibacy. So priests and religious, uh, none of, in the Roman rite anyway, none of them get married. And so people just kind of like stick it all into one category. That's that vocation. And then there's the married vocation. You know? 
which anyway, it's a starting point for thinking about these things. But consecrated life really is a different kind of vocation. It is a, a radical following of Christ. And it's one of those vocations that only makes sense if you have faith. Uh, we didn't have consecrated chastity or celibacy. That wasn't a thing before Christ. The Jews, there wasn't really anybody that certainly has a vocation. There were a couple of exceptional cases, you know, the prophet Jeremiah or, uh, oh, I don't know, there are a few others, Elijah maybe. There are a few rare cases, but it wasn't something that people would say, huh, I wonder what state in life I'm called to. Maybe I'm called to be celibate. Maybe I'm called to be married, which is how things are now after Christ, because Christ himself and his uh, virgin mother in her own way, and St. Joseph in his own way, although there's a marriage there. That's a whole other podcast we could have. But uh, anyway, the uh, Christ gave us an example of a celibate life. Jesus didn't marry. And so he opened up that way of living as a, as a, as a vocation, as a state of life for Christians, and makes it a possibility for discernment. Now, that's something that we've kept alive, especially in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox churches. Also, uh, the, the Protestant churches haven't held on to that quite as much, although I've known some Protestants who, as a kind of exceptional thing, but they discern celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, which is something that Jesus talks about. So that's a kind of interesting thing. But we certainly had that as a very prominent part of the life of the Catholic Church. We have uh, priesthood in the Roman rite is always celibate. And then we also have this whole host of religious orders. Now, a lot of people know, like the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Jesuits, the Benedictines, and those, uh, maybe the Carmelites, kind of those big five religious orders are, are fairly well known. If anybody knows anything, they probably know the Franciscans, you know, but people went to Jesuit places or, or you know, but they're actually just thousands of religious orders, probably even in the world today. And then certainly there, throughout the history of the church, there are religious orders that have grown up and in some cases uh, eventually faded out and stopped existing. Uh, but just thousands of religious orders. And, and the Second Vatican Council described this as part of the splendor of the church, that God decorates his church. He uh, clothes his church in splendor and decorates her with a variety of charisms. Charisms are, it's the word for gift in Greek, gives this whole variety of, of gifts, of spiritualities. And so Franciscans and Dominicans and Jesuits and uh, Carmelites, they all make vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, but they live them out in different ways. The the Franciscans have a special devotion to poverty. The Dominicans have a special devotion to preaching. The Carmelites have a special devotion to prayer. The Jesuits have a special devotion to discernment. The Benedictines have a special devotion to liturgy, the liturgy of the hours. And so now that's a simplification, but there's a way that, that uh, all these different religious orders kind of take hold of a particular aspect. A lot of people know maybe the missionaries of charity and, St. Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, founded an order really focused on the presence of Christ in the poorest of the poor. And she made a, a kind of uh, theme, a motto out of Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 25, 
I was sick and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And then he summarizes, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And that was a real, she, she lived that out in a radical way. And anyway, we have this whole variety of ways of living out the Christian life and even in very radical ways and in very different ways. Men and women, uh, different, different orders, and that, that whole consecrated life is part of the, is, is one of the amazing things that Christ has, has given to his church. And probably all of us in one, one degree or another have been touched by religious. We might not have even been aware, totally aware that this is a, a consecrated religious man or woman. And we have different, different points of encounter. But, uh, but it really is part of the richness of the church to have this whole variety of spiritualities. And then the spiritualities also become a gift more broadly, most of these religious orders have a kind of lay association, married people and single people who have a special affinity for the Franciscan spirituality or for the Dominican spirituality or for the Benedictine spirituality or any of these varieties, thousands of orders. Uh, and a lot of lay people will have you know, special friendship maybe with one of the members of that order and then come to appreciate the spirituality for itself, maybe have a special affinity for the the saint that founded the order. And so then they have a kind of a way of making promises and taking on some aspects of that spirituality. And that becomes a gift for the whole church. So that's part of the, the richness of, of consecrated religious life. And, and we can go into talk about re revisiting your question in regard to seminary, Joe, uh, how does one become a religious? How does this happen? But let me just pause there and give you a chance to uh, make a little comment and break up the my monologue somewhat. Well, sure, and, and that's part of where it was going to ask because you said in the beginning there that the order I had was wrong. You, you effectively say most people discern an order and then later on become a priest, um, which okay, that, that I guess that makes sense. You know, at, at the end of the day, it does take a long time to become a priest. Um, and I would imagine that being part of an order helps that journey um, of having people around you and people going through the same thing that you are. So a lot of sharing in the same challenges of that vocation versus another. Because just because you're a priest doesn't mean challenges of life go away. And the need to be with other people and talk to people goes away. You're, you're still a person. You know, that, that's still a human need. So with that being said, you highlighted why the church has, has said this is so important to it and how they emphasize different elements. Because one of the things that I've gathered throughout this, the teachings that you've done, not just about this topic, but throughout, is that no one of us individually can perfectly emulate Christ. We can try to take a part of him. A, a specific aspect that you just kind of highlighted what some of the individual groups are trying to do, but you're never going to get all of it. Uh, that's why he's God and you're not. So that's basically how I boiled that down might be oversimplifying it, but nonetheless, I can see the advantage of being with a group who's trying to obtain the same goal and do it in the same way. So with that being said, that is the next question of, of how do you go about discerning that? And then how does that process begin as far as joining an order 
and the commitments therein. Yeah, thanks. And, and your your summary is right on the mark, Joe, about none of us being able to fully imitate Christ. He had a number of dimensions to his life. One, for example, is that he went alone, away alone, and he prayed. And the Gospels make note of that on many occasions. And so there's a whole order, well, and a number of orders, really. I mean, contemplative orders dedicate their lives to that more intense solitude and prayer. And so they live out that dimension of the life of Christ. They live out that dimension of the mystical body of Christ. Jesus also went around and healed people. And there are orders that are dedicated to the, those works of mercy focused on healing. And we do that through uh, medicine a lot now, but also spiritual healing and guiding people sp spiritually and, and helping people to work through uh, various wound areas of woundedness in their life. Um, as I've mentioned, preaching and, uh, and and also in his suffering, there's a, there's an order dedicated to the Passion of Christ called the Passionists, the Congregation of the Passion. It was founded by Saint Paul of the Cross, and they're really focused on the Passion of Christ and having a devotion to that mystery, which of course is represented to us in the Eucharist. And then also we meditate on that in the Way of the Cross, and we meditate on it in the Seven Sorrows of Mary, and a number of other ways that. We can meditate on the passion of Christ, but St. Paul of the Cross was really drawn to that key element of Christ's mysteries and focused on that. And of course, we also see the passion of Christ being lived out in the poor and suffering uh, of today. And so the passionists have had a particular devotion to those who are suffering spiritually and physically and to care for them, uh, adoring Christ who is also suffering in them and with them. So. Um, yeah, you said it beautifully. That's There's a way, in a, in a radical way, whole groups of people live out parts of the mystical life of Christ, Christ and his mysteries. And so what often happens as people are growing up or, you know, in the context of their life, maybe as part of their conversion, they, they tend to get some, they have some contact with a particular religious order, and then something really resonates that they are drawn to that way of living out the, the mystical life of Christ and, and feeling, uh, praying, discerning that they're drawn to that more, you know, radical sacrifice. As I said, not that marriage isn't a radical sacrifice, but marriage is also a natural vocation. Before there was Christ, <laughs> before he came in the flesh 2,000 years ago, everybody was getting married. That's a, It's a natural vocation. And it's you know, left over from, not left over, but uh, it wasn't affected, it wasn't destroyed by the fall, as it says in the, the prayers for the sacrament of marriage, that it was the one sacrament not destroyed uh, by the fall. And so, but but marriage, you know, uh, people, people would normally get married. Living a celibate life is really an act of faith. You, you know, to, to to live a sacramental marriage is an act of faith, but it looks very much like living a non-sacramental marriage, which is a natural, uh, a natural state. Living a celibate life is an act of faith. People don't just do that because they feel like it. Uh, now, there are different reasons that some people never marry, but uh, for the most part, really discerning that actively as a young person and making a commitment to that is something pretty out of the ordinary. 
uh, even statistically is out of the ordinary. So why would someone do that? Well, having had an encounter with Christ at uh, at a young age, I'll just focus, that's the kind of normal thing, you know, maybe as a high schooler, maybe in college, having had a more profound encounter with Christ, to be, becoming uh, aware of him in prayer, and then being really moved by maybe some very strong spiritual consolations, start thinking about giving giving their life in a, in a radical way to him. And and then, you know, that that tends to open up a world where people start to see, oh, gosh, there are, there are a variety of ways to give ourselves to him. One of them certainly being marriage, you know, and people sometimes after encountering the, uh, the Lord in that time of prayer, start thinking about a celibate vocation because they feel that draw to this kind of radical commitment and then rediscover marriage as a radical commitment. You know, there's a way to live marriage as a kind of pagan thing. And there's a way to live marriage as a holy and faithful Catholic. And the, those are very, they have some similarities in their external structure, but in the internal, it can be quite different. So anyway, after, after having some encounter with the Lord and, and discerning a call to maybe a more radical self-gift, then these, these options tend to open up and people say, wow, you know, I'm really drawn to the spirituality, this Franciscan spirituality or this Benedictine spirituality. And then the normal thing would be to, well, actually live with some Franciscans or live with some Benedictines for a weekend, for a week, for a month, and actually see what that's like from the inside. Get a little taste of it from the inside. We don't usually discern marriage that way because we all grew up in families, but we didn't grow up in religious orders. And so what's this like? What is this, what is this experience of community, of brotherhood, or for women, of sisterhood? What, what's that like? We, we tend to need something a little bit experiential and to taste that. And then we maybe start to bring some of that home with us, try to live, live that out a little bit in, our, in the context of our own life. All of these supernatural vocations draw their life from the Eucharist. And so one of the things that often goes with uh, discerning a religious vocation is a stronger Eucharistic devotion daily mass, Eucharistic adoration, often goes hand in hand with this kind of discernment because it just doesn't make any sense without Christ. And to have him and his Eucharistic presence is, is the most profound encounter we can have. And, and we're drawn to him in his flesh. We're giving up human flesh in the context of marriage, the flesh of others, or uh, in some way, you know, maybe satisfying our own flesh. And we're really choosing his flesh as the, as the nourishment for our life. So the Eucharistic devotion often goes hand in hand. And sometimes is even the origin. People spending time in Eucharistic adoration more, this question will start to come up in their hearts as they're praying. Wow, maybe, maybe I could really live with you. you know, it's, it's a simple way of describing religious life. We live with Jesus. <laughs> Every religious house has a chapel in it with the Blessed Sacrament. So I live in the same house as Jesus. And there's something different about that, you know, something beautiful about that. And so uh, now the way that I live with him for myself is a Benedictine way, where we follow the rule of St. Benedict. He lived back in 500 AD. 
an old rule and we lived that out. And so if somebody were interested in the Benedictine life, they would probably look at us. That's the way every, everything works now is you look at it on the web when there's no commitment. You watch some videos and see what the community looks like. You get to see some of the signs and symbols of uh, Benedictine life, the external appearances, and get to maybe watch some interviews with some monks and how did their vocation come about. And people do this kind of uh, scouting in, uh, in today's world and certainly our, our website, uh, stvincentmonks.com is uh, a good place to check out some things and some videos on YouTube and things like that. And so kind of seeing that and then being moved by that, you know, a person says, well, I want to visit. And, and then after making some visits and eventually coming to a place in prayer that you think, yeah, I think this is, this is where the Lord's calling me and I want to take a more intense discernment. And so that involves entering as a postulant uh, or as a, as a novice in our case. You can enter uh, pretty directly into the novitiate, receive a habit, receive a new name, and start living out this Benedictine life. Now, there's a whole year of discernment. The novitiate year is a, a year of discernment, living the life, living in community, participating in the prayer, living the discipline of, of being a Benedictine, usually a little bit more we, we do some uh, detoxing from technology and don't allow people to use the, the internet uh, or email or Facebook or any of that to kind of separate from the world a little bit more and, and start to open up, opening up the internal, the inner world of, of prayer and spiritual sensitivity. And then after a year of that, as a novice, uh, uh, a young man might decide he wants to make a, a one-year vow to live out the life as a professed Benedictine. And so he can make that vow if the community also agrees. The community discerns a man and the man discerns the community. And if there's mutual agreement that this is what God is calling for, that um, that, that man could make vows and stay for a year. At the end of each year, in our case, the, the decision to renew vows would happen until at least three years of what we call simple vows, one-year vows. And then a man can make his solemn vows, which are for life. And that's uh, binding in the church. He can't get married after that. He can't you know, leave the monastery after that. That's a life commitment. Now, there are some exceptional cases that a dispensation could be granted by the, by the Pope, by the, the Holy See. But in any event, uh, that point of solemn vows is really a lifelong commitment. So that comes after at least four years. Canon law requires at least four years of discernment, uh, a year of novitiate, three years of simple vows, and then uh, a man would be eligible for solemn vows in our order. In some other orders, the minimums are a little longer, two-year novitiate, four, five years of, of simple vows to really be sure. You know, it's a big deal. It's a real act of faith. It's not something that one does lightly. And so uh, we really give the time for people to make a good discernment and to be formed in the spirituality and humanly, spiritually in the, in the religious order. So that's the kind of basic process of becoming a consecrated religious. As I said, if one is a, a man and has joined a clerical order that allows for priests, then there might also be a discernment of priesthood that goes on according to the 
the community's discernment and according to the man's discernment. And so that, uh, that's a possibility in, in those cases. But anyway, that's a basic structure um, of, of becoming a consecrated religious, which is just another state of life in the church. Yeah, and, and thank you for, for educating us on that because, again, you know, I don't think many people know what that is like. And one of the things that struck me from it as far as what you told is how much differently you must live your life knowing that you're living with Christ in your house. Um, something that, you know, you think think back to, to growing up, how it was different when, when mom was at home versus when mom was home. But to have Christ there is something that's that's got to be altering in itself in a lot of positive ways and something that probably can't be overstated. Um, so I think that there's, there's certainly something to that to, uh, to identify there throughout what you were telling us. So as we're concluding today's episode, if you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with as we prepare into the following week. Well, just uh, an encouragement for our listeners. If you're already in a, a state of life, if you're already married, for example, uh, or you're already a religious or a priest, I would ask for you to pray for uh, vocations to religious life, that young people would uh, respond to that, and also pray for those who are in formation. It's not easy. It's not easy to live religious life. It would probably be worth dedicating another podcast just to talking about you know, what, what, what do religious offer to the world? I indicated some aspects of that and the different spiritualities that are lived out and really enrich the church and enrich people's personal spiritual journeys. But uh, yeah, there's a kind of basic thing in a witness of community life. The vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience stand directly in the face of the demons of money, sex, and power. And the corruption, the abuse of money, sex, and power causes a lot of problems in our world today. And so religious who are trying to live out poverty, chastity, and obedience are a, a kind of remedy to that, an antidote to that. But also in terms of community life and charity and uh, taking care of our elderly in the, in the communities and things like that, there are a lot of beautiful things that religious do that are educational and inspirational for, for people living in the world. So anyway, um, for those already in a state of life to maybe get to know a spirituality or get to know religious, it's a, they, they really are a kind of, we are a, a leaven in the world and provide some brightness. People who get to know religious often remark on the joy of religious life when it's being lived out well there is a real joyfulness and a freedom there's almost a kind of childlikeness there's a playfulness that happens in religious even at very you know 80 years of age there's a kind of glimmer in the eye and a certain playfulness that's there in in the one who has has lived out that religious life well and so it really is a, such a great blessing to get to know religious so I'd encourage that encourage you know maybe married people who are listening to uh, share f for the sake of their children, find religious and, and make a, a connection there. And then for people who are still discerning, just invite you to pray about whether God is calling you to be a, a brother or a sister in a religious order. Perfect. And, and what a beautiful note to end upon here. 
So we'll be with you again next week, everyone. And please uh, continue telling your friends about us. And please listen to Father as well about praying about the vocations as well.